I'm turning this evening to the Gospel of John, chapter 4 and verse 10. The Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 10. Jesus answered and said unto her, the woman of Samaria, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. And this is our subject, if only you knew Christ, the gift of God. He is the gift of God. And so Christ says to this woman, if thou knewest, but she didn't, the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, she didn't know. Thou wouldst have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Well, it arises this from Christ's encounter with the woman of Samaria, who was uh, taking her uh, bucket, her basin, to the well outside the town of Sychar, alone for some reason, perhaps because she was notably sinful, that's on record. She was shunned, maybe, by the other women of the town. And whereas they usually went to the well in groups, she appears to be alone. She's had five husbands, and here she is, and Christ is sat on the well. The disciples, the text tells us, have gone into the town to buy food. So Christ is alone. And he addresses her and he asks for a drink. I'm sure he did it most politely, most kindly. The text is brief. It could sound a little haughty and domineering, but that's only really an accident of the brevity of the text. I'm sure it was very courteously done. The woman takes no offense, but she's stunned. She's shocked because he is a Jew and she is a woman of Samaria. And there, as the text tells us, there are no dealings between them. And yet this man speaks to her, I assume, very courteously, as person to person. So she's taken aback and he asks for a drink. And then he utters these words. Uh, she's incredulous. She says, how is it you're speaking to me? If you knew the gift of God, he says, and if you knew who it was who is speaking to you, then you'd ask a different question. You'd ask for living water. She doesn't get it. He uses a sort of figure, living water. What he means is you wouldn't be asking for ordinary water. You'd be asking for what he could give you, something he calls living water. It's obviously a figure for something spiritual, which he can impart, but she doesn't understand this. Yes, he's speaking of spiritual life, the Holy Spirit who gives life to dead souls and puts people into touch with God himself. That's what he's talking about 
She doesn't see it, not at all. The woman says to him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? The word translated living can mean running, or bubbling, or active, or moving in some way. But she doesn't get that clue. Where are you going to get this water? And the Lord says, or she says to him, Are you greater than our ancestor, Jacob? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. You'd think now he was making it plain, making it easier for her to get the point. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Who ever heard of such a thing? A water that satisfies forever. A water that is active within you and springs up into everlasting life. It energizes your entire life. It buoys you along and it will be with you all the way until you enter eternity and enter heaven. That's the meaning. Spiritual life is what he's speaking of. The lady doesn't even begin to get it. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She extracts from all that he says the little bit that could be interpreted materially. Because that's the way she sees everything. There's something in what he says that speaks about water that goes on and on and you never have to come back and refill. That's what I want, that I don't have to come hither to draw anymore. She doesn't even begin to grasp that there's a spiritual meaning here a spiritual message. And so Christ begins to speak to her along a different plane, which I won't actually pursue this evening, because I want to talk about the mystery of her ignorance and our unawareness of spiritual things. Naturally speaking, although everyone has an instinct for God, There's no doubt about that. Everyone has a degree of instinct about God, yet at the same time, everyone naturally has no awareness of him, no sense of him, no communication with him, no feeling concerning him. And everybody naturally is against God and disinclined to have him, does not want to serve him, or worship him, or seek him, or find him, or know him. That's the tendency of all human beings. That's the trouble with us. We are a unique creature on this planet, vastly higher than the animals, with all our unique senses, with our power of reason, and our gifts, and our gift of creativity, and many other things also, and yet 
We don't want to think about these having been given to us, about God, about our accountability to him. We don't want him. We don't want to think about him. We want all of life, material life, for ourselves. The here and now. And we shut ourselves in with that. And so we're unaware of him and his purposes, his intentions, his plans. We don't want to read the scriptures, the Bible. If we do, we don't understand it. It doesn't mean anything to us because there's a problem with us that stops us desiring to know, desiring to search these things out. Our unawareness of God Well, it's amazingly strong. I was uh, speaking to a man only a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it it happens, he was a cab driver, and I asked him if he went to church. And he said, no, 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 I don't do anything like that, never have, he said. I'm not saying anything against him, this is just typical of us all. No, I'm not interested in that, he said. I, I don't care anything about that. And then he offered a reason. He said, I've, I've had in my car, uh, not very long ago, uh, a man who had an infant with him who he was taking to hospital for some regular treatment and the infant, little tot, suffered from leukemia and he looked very, very poorly, very sick, and this man was very grave. He'd had, the boy had had a lot of treatments and so on, and there was little hope for him, appears. And then this uh, driver said, well, with things like that in the world, with parents who have infants who are dying from terrible diseases, uh, how can there be a God who's responsible for that? And that was his great problem. But uh, I said to him, you know, do, do you, have you sought any explanation of that? Words to that effect? No, 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 there's no explanation. So I tried to give him one and explain one. And he listened politely. But you could see that uh, what I really want to say about this is not the outcome of this, but that... With this uh, man, this was an excuse. He took no interest. He had no time for God. He didn't want to worship. I'm not saying it's against him because I was once in exactly that position. And the Lord can save any of us. But there was something he could hide behind. Ah, here was a parent with a dying child or possibly dying child. What a terrible thing. What kind of a God could do that? So there is no God. But that's the trouble with us. We almost leap at these things. Ah, I've got an explanation. I've got an excuse. I've got a reason. I've got something I can get hold of which shuts out all religion and uh, sanctions my complete indifference and neglect. And I don't have to feel bad about it. But that's how we are. And I've done that. And we all do that. 
look for something which gets rid of God or seems to in our mind and excuses us and justifies our indifference and our rejection of God and our rebellion against him. There's a lot of things you could say. I won't entirely pass over this event because, of course, in the case of little children, we believe that they are safe as far as they're concerned. If they die very early in life, they are safe. Now, the Bible doesn't absolutely clearly say so, but in three or four passages, it strongly hints at that. It's something that is not totally disclosed to us in the Bible, but it strongly hints that the very, very young will not be under the judgment of God, but will be regarded as under the atoning death of Christ. So that's one thing, and most Bible-believing preachers from the Reformation on have thought that this, well, what is often called the theology of hope, because that seems to be the hint of the Bible. But what the Bible does even more clearly is explain why there is death generally in the world and tragedy and commotion. And whose fault is it? According to the scripture from cover to cover, it is our fault. It is the fault of mankind. It is we who have brought this about. God cannot be blamed. God has created the world, the universe. God has made us. God has given us all good things, created us as we are. And what have we done? Not just our first parents, but all the human race. We have rejected him. We have despised him. We have rebelled against him. We've disobeyed his published commandments and his standards of righteousness. We've sinned against his laws and his ways. We've ignored his messengers. We've repudiated him. We've slandered him. We've cursed him. We've hated him. We've taught against him. What will God do? Treat us as though nothing has happened? No, God has put this world under judgment. The principle of death has come in. That we will, because of sin, die. First of all, we've died spiritually, so that we're now cut off from God. And furthermore, there'll come a time where we will die physically and face him and give an account to God. In fact, that process is already underway. Our bodies are slowly dying all the time, even in the aging process. The principle of death is drawing in upon us. Spiritual death first, physical death second. God has brought into this good world death, disease, corruption, deterioration, rot. But it's our fault. It's the rebellion of the human race. That's the teaching of the scriptures, the revelation of God. This is how we're to understand 
the world in which we live and ourselves and human nature as those who have rebelled against God. So it is tragic when people begin to think, no, anything ill in the world that makes us recoil is God's fault. No, it's our fault because God's blessing and kindness has in a measure been withdrawn from us. We have brought it about. So the hardship comes and the difficult things come in and death comes in. What do we do? Do we stop and think and say, I must turn to the Lord? We must turn back to him. No, we say, this is his fault. We'll run even further away. That's the rebellion of the human race. It's called the fall. The fall of man. Started with our first parents. Deeply embedded in the entire human race. We are fallen from the favour and the blessing and the constant goodness of God. And we're subject to discipline. And that is, you know, I might tell you that some years ago I read a fairly brief autobiographical work by the broadcaster, who's now retired, I believe, John Humphreys, the man who used to uh, take the more long morning uh, news magazine program on Radio 4 for years and years. And in this book, he writes about his own attitude to God and the things that uh, uh, have made him think and the turn-offs for him. And do you know what the big turn-off was for John Humphreys? Exactly the same as for the cab driver. What about the parent who finds that a child is dying from a disease? How can a good God ever allow anything like that? Well, I've given you the reply. It's inevitable. All the kindness and the goodness and the generosity of God has been abused and spat upon and turned back and ignored. And so we have the fall and the judgments upon the world and limitations and difficulties have come in. And that's the reason for these things. But we use them as an excuse. So often we don't want the answers. I could spend all evening on objections to God, giving you the simple answers, how we get the wrong end of the idea entirely, because we're so anxious to blame him and to stand away from him. But here is an example. And the woman, she cannot even begin to grasp anything spiritual in what Christ has said. But God, for his part, what's he done? He sent a saviour. He sent the second person of the Godhead. You know that God is three persons in one Godhead. There is only one God, in a sense, and yet there are this is the great mystery of God. Three persons in the Godhead. The Father, the Son, though not Son as we understand it, because he is equally God with the Father, equally powerful, equally all-knowing, equally divine. 
but we call him scripturally the Son. And he came, became incarnate, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. There are the three persons of the Godhead. And in their eternal wisdom and counsel, they have created a way of salvation for lost people. Even though we curse God, even though we oppose him, even though we spend our lives sinning against him, even though we shut ourselves in to this material world and say, I don't want anything spiritual, anything of God. Yet in his loving kindness, he's willing to forgive and to save and to bless those who come to him. And he's provided this salvation in this way. A member of the Godhead had to come into this life. And it was Christ. Through Christ, all things were made, the Bible tells us. He was the member of the eternal Godhead to whom was deputed the task of creation. And he made the universe at a word. He must enter into this world of ours and assume a human body, be born to a woman, become truly human, but not by a human father because he would be God as well as man. So he would come from a mother's womb he would have true physical characteristics, but somehow, to our way of thinking, impossibly merged with his divine nature and being, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he would be the representative of this fallen, doomed, sinful human race. And he would go to, through life live a perfect, spotless life, no sin. That was essential, because if he was to be our sin-bearer, he couldn't be dying for any sins of his own. And of course, he was God as well as man. He was bound not to sin. And he lived a life performing amazing, compassionate miracles, on every conceivable kind of sickness and infirmity. And then he allowed himself to be taken by wicked hands and crucified on a cross. And he bore on that cross not only the punishment of the nails through his hands and feet and the hanging in the heat of the sun to break him, but something vastly greater also God put upon him the guilt of every single person in the history of the world who would be forgiven, who would be brought to turn to him and cry out to him for forgiveness and for new life. All their sin, the sin of everyone who would be redeemed, be saved, be converted, the eternal punishment would be compressed into a matter of six hours. 
and borne away by Christ in his body and in his innermost soul. The terrible, terrible sense of eternal separation from the Father which we deserve. Every aspect of the punishment for sin, he had to bear it away to save his own. Why was that? Why did salvation have to be so costly? Why did he have to do such a thing? Because God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, are perfectly holy and just. And one thing, well, there are many things God cannot do. God cannot sin. God cannot change. If he changed even a little bit, he either wouldn't have been perfect before or he wouldn't be perfect now. So the perfect God cannot change, cannot sin, and cannot act against his holy character. He is pure and holy. He must punish sin. The only way God could forgive you and me is by taking the punishment himself and bearing away our punishment on our behalf. That's why it had to be so difficult. That's why Christ had to come to make an atonement, to be our substitute, to be our sin-bearer. And he did it with his heart full of love. When he suffered and died on Calvary's cross, he could see in his mind every single person in the history of the world who would be saved for whom he would die. And he did it for us all. The love of God, the astonishing kindness of the Lord. God has provided a way of salvation in spite of the way that we have treated him. For those who will be seen to turn to him and to repent of sin and to ask for those blessings of conversion. Oh, dear friends, looking at this passage, verse 10 again, Jesus answered and said unto her, the woman, if thou knewest the gift of God. Did you notice that word, the gift of God? Why is Christ and salvation called the gift of God? Because that's exactly what it is, a gift. How do you come to be converted? How do you come to have your sins forgiven and receive a new life from God and to be able to walk with him? Is it by contributing something? Is it by working for it? Is it by following some prescribed set of ceremonials or rituals? How do you go about it? No, says Christ. It has to be, and it must be, a gift. The only way you can be converted to God is by a gift. God giving you this new life freely, giving you forgiveness freely. The biblical word is by grace. 
That means undeserved, unmerited, unearned in any way. You receive the forgiveness of sin and a new life, conversion power, and a place in heaven, and a walk with God, communion with him, entirely, freely. All I do is come, fall on my knees, in some sense, some shape or form. I acknowledge I'm a lost sinner, confess my total unworthiness and inability, confess my need to him, Trust in Christ as the only Saviour and what he has done and he will hear my prayer. God will receive me, transform me, bring me to himself, give me this experience of conversion to Christ. That's how it is, freely. The instant I think I must contribute anything, God forgive me. Hear my cry, give me a new life, and I bring with me this that you will like, and that that you will like. I bring with me certain good works that I imagine I'm capable of. It's no good. It will all fail. It's crucial that I understand I can bring nothing. I can contribute nothing. I just depend upon the kindness and the mercy and the grace of Christ. It's a free gift. He must do everything. He must die to save me. By his power, he must change me, make a new person of me. And he will. And that's what this passage really means. Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. It's something that you'll be given that will last lifelong. Oh, you may fall into some sin. You may have times of what we call backsliding when your hard heart takes over and you lose your footing for a moment and God will bring you back because he will never part with you once you're saved. Should you falter, should you stumble, whether it takes some kindness or some discipline, he'll bring you back, because this is once converted, always the Lord's. If you're truly converted, whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. What would it feel like? What is being described here as a well of water springing up into everlasting life? Well, he'll give you a new understanding of the scripture, of the way of salvation, of the ways of God, things that were mysterious to you before, you will understand God's plans, God's purposes. He'll give you a new conscience, which really works. And when you go to sin, your conscience will speak. And God will help you to resist that sin. This water within you bubbling up 
You're in the campaign against sin now. You're on the side of holiness. You're living for the Lord. Sin still troubles you, but you're fighting against it. He'll give you a sense of assurance that he's worked in your life and saved you and that you belong to him and you are his and he is yours and you'll be certain of it. And when you pray, there'll be a strange assurance in your heart that you're being heard by God. And of course, you'll get the double assurance when the answers to those prayers come. And things that are noble and worthy, you ask for and pray for. And you pray for other people and you pray for situations. And time after time, you have the evidence of the power of God as God hears you and answers from on high. All manner of things will take place in your life and you'll love him and desire him and serve him increasingly as you've got set before you the time when you're called home to be eternally with the Lord, which is far better. This is the Christian experience, and this is what this passage is about. Oh, friends, don't be among those who don't want answers to questions, who use some difficult problem about God as a, a shield against him, as a barricade to keep him out, and give you every excuse to ignore him. Don't live a life just for the here and now. No God, no blessing from on high with judgment to face. This woman, the evidence is, she was very affected by what Christ went on to tell her and what happened subsequently. And so was the whole town or village, however large was the size of the place, we don't know. But Christ saved souls in that place. May it be true of us that God moves you from the point where you have no awareness at all. God means nothing to you except that basic instinct that there is a God. You don't know him, you don't want to know him, and you barricade against him. May God move you to the place where you are deeply affected. I am a sinner, I need a saviour. Christ in his kindness has come to suffer and die for a sinner like me. I will go to him. I will lay myself at his feet. I will yield my life to him. I will cry out for forgiveness and for conversion and for new life. Oh, that you should know the living God who speaks from heaven and calls to needy souls. Let's pray together. O oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, help us all, we ask. Look upon us this night, move in every heart. Let none be lost, let none be careless, no, no one indifferent. Come and move, O oh Lord, 
and draw to thyself and save. Even this night we ask it in our dear Saviour's name, for his sake. Amen.